Hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Gutierrez Show for Wednesday, August 26th. We'll be joined by Amir Adaran with the good news and the bad news when it comes to a potential viable COVID vaccine by spring. And you've probably heard that Toronto Raptors Fred Van Vliet and Norm Powell are concerned that their efforts with Black Lives Matter may not be enough. Will there be a boycott of Game 1 in the Raptors-Celtics series? All right, let's get right down to it. There's a lot of sports news to discuss, so we're bringing in Rick Zamprin, who is the guy at CHML that knows all about sports. He is a sports director at a sister station, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Welcome to the program. Always good to have you on, Rick. You make sense of these stories that... You know, for to me, might just be sideline stories, but to people that are uh, big sports fans, they're really important news, right? Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, and, and you know what? The, the the news that's coming out of the NBA bubble is absolutely massive. When you have players like Fred VanVleet and Norm Powell and others who are contemplating boycotting games to get the Black Lives Matter message amplified even more so, uh, that's massive. All right. So when they are discussing boycotting games, um, are they I understand Nick Nurse says that they are very serious about this. Is it players boycotting the game? Get us into the skinny of what they're proposing here. Or is it the Raptors just saying, nope, uh, we're not playing game one. That'll go to the Celtics. And can they afford to do that? Well, it's not just the Raptors. I mean, you know, the Boston Celtics and, and the Raptors and other teams, you know, had some media availabilities yesterday. And I guess a lot of the publicity on this side of the border is, is, of course, what came out of the Raptors news conference. And Van Vliet and Powell and even Nick Nurse, they were all adamant that, you know, they're, they're, they're contemplating this. And I, I like what Nick Nurse had to say. He was basically saying that he's willing to do whatever the players want to do because he wants to make sure that, uh, A, they're okay, and you know, this is their platform to speak. And let's not forget that, you know, before the, the NBA bubble was created, you know, there was a lot of contemplation about, you know, with the, uh, the the death of George Floyd in May, you know, will they be able to still get their message out there uh, while still playing basketball? I think the NBA has done a pretty good job of, of you know, allowing the players to do that. They have the messaging on the court. Uh, they've allowed players to, you know, sport a message on the back of their jersey, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Freedom or Justice for All or whatever the case is. You know, the league has done a pretty good job. But now you have players saying, well, listen, that, that kind of message... Uh, you know, kneeling at the anthem is kind of getting washed out. And that 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 new reality or that realization uh, is being had because of uh, the recent death of uh, Jacob Blake over the weekend in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And there's protests and uh, and whatnot and NBA players and, and not just NBA players, but African-Americans and, and those uh, people of color north of the border as well are looking at that situation to say, you know, we've done all this. We have these protests ever since George Floyd uh, was killed, and, and nothing has really changed. And, and is our message getting out there? So now the players are thinking, hey, listen, if we boycott the games, this is you know this is the ultimate leverage that we have. Because now, let's not forget what happened with the Washington football team. There was a lot of pressure from huge corporations to institute change. And now, so if NBA players say, listen, we're not going to play unless change is made, so now you're looking at the ESPNs and the TNTs and all the sports networks of the world. All the reporters are going to be eyeing, uh, you know, in on this. You have a multi-billion-dollar uh, league that has a lot of clout. This might be the way for the players to ultimately get their message to make some serious change. And if one boycott won't do that, how far do they go? Can you see them possibly canceling the season? 
You know what? I don't know if they would go that far. But in saying that, I wouldn't be surprised either. Let's not forget, you know, 2020 has been uh, really a write-off in the sports world. So, you know, if they're looking at, you know, what is happening in America with police and uh, social injustice and racial injustice, they might think, you know, what, what does basketball really matter? I know they've, they've gotten paid and they're getting paid to play. But at the end of the day, they might see that this is a greater uh, sense of, of civic duty to say, listen, uh, to heck with sports. We have a, a greater purpose uh, and, and call for change. Lowry's left ankle sprain. We know that uh, he is uh, t- being taken care of with kit gloves right now. Um, what uh, what are we hearing about it? How long till he can play again? Well, at last check, his status is uncertain. Uh, you know, we saw Kyle Lowry play in the NBA playoffs last year with a sprained thumb. Uh, an ankle is a little bit different. You can, you can still kind of shoot and certainly get around the courts with a sprained thumb. With an ankle, that's a little tougher to do. So I think at this point, he is questionable. I think that's probably the best case prognosis. Uh, I can see him missing game one, but I can also see because he's such a tough guy, I can see him kind of gutting it out and, and trying to at least play game one. Um, at the end of the day, this is such a deep team. I know they, they would love to have him on the floor. Nick Nurse mentioned that. You know, he'd rather have Kyle Lowry than, than not have him. But Toronto went 12-2 and two without Lowry on the floor this year. They have so many weapons. Uh, but in saying that, hey, Boston's not going to be an easy out at all. The Celtics are a well-coached team. They have a talented unit on the floor. Um, this is going to be a great series, I think. You brought up Colin Kaepernick, so I just want to go to the NFL and a story out of the NFL that we were talking about yesterday. Uh, They're planning to invite 13,000 fans into the stadium. Um, Wow. It seems like they are on another planet when it comes to fan bases. When we look at all the other organized sports leagues and what they're doing, you know, beaming people in by uh, screen or just, you know, cardboard cutouts. Is this a big mistake? Yeah, this is uh, the Miami Dolphins have announced that 13,000 fans are going to go to Hard Rock Stadium. We saw last night the Montreal Impact, which has a capacity of 20,000 at Saputo Stadium, invite 250 fans. And they were really spread out in a couple of sections of that stadium. But to invite 20% of your stadium's capacity to watch a football game, uh, it's pretty bold. So the Dolphins better get it right in terms of not necessarily placing the people in the stadium, but think about getting the people in the stadium. How are they going to be physically distanced? Will they be when they go through the turnstiles? Uh, There's not going to be any physical tickets. It's all going to be digitally uh, done. But at the end of the day, you know, there's still going to be lineups at concession stands, at washrooms to get in. Uh, This could be precedent setting, but it could also set this whole situation back a bit. The Jays, uh, they uh, lost a three-run lead yesterday and unfortunately lost their game. A lot of people are hurt. Uh, on the team. Are they going to get a pitcher by trade deadline? (laughs) Good question. You know, they're in the hunt, and I think that is maybe more than what many people had expected. Um, You know, losing like they did last night to Boston, that's going to happen from time to time. Uh, But look what they did over the weekend. You know, they played a tough raised team. They earned a series split. They could have really won all four games in the same sense. They could have lost all four games. It was that kind of an up-and-down roller coaster series. I, I think the Jays are buyers in this kind of abbreviated season. I think they look at, you know, the expanded playoff format. There's 16 teams getting in. They might think, you know, this could be a way to, you know, allow our young talent, the Kevin Bijos of the world, the Vladdy Guerrero's, the Bo Bichette's, uh, the Nate Pearson, if he does come off the injured list, 
uh, it'll allow those guys to get a taste of postseason play, even though it might just be a one car, a one kind of game wild card playoff. Get them into the playoffs. Get them into that, uh, you know, that that sense of you know this is a do or die situation, which they haven't had in a few years. Um, this could be good. So I, I think the Jays are going to be buyers. Certainly, they need pitching because a lot of guys are on the injured list. Uh, they yep. seem to be going like flies. I don't think anybody is listed as the starter for today's game, at least at last check. So, uh, yeah, I think the Jays are going to be going all in this year. All right, and lastly, let's talk about the Leafs. They traded uh, Kapanen yesterday to the Pittsburgh Penguins for a first-round pick. Do you expect them to keep him or trade him for defense? Uh, the Leafs with that draft pick are going to hold on to that, and I think the Penguins are going to go hold, hold on to Kasperi Kapanen because they once had him in 2014. They drafted him, in fact, and then shipped him to Toronto in the Phil Kessel deal. I think this is a great deal for the Leafs. They did not have a first-round draft pick after they gave one up to Carolina for the Patrick Marlowe uh, deal to take on his salary. Uh, good trade for the Leafs. They have a lot of similar kind of players to Kasperi Kapanen. Their needs, yes, on defense uh, or, or adding a little more grit or toughness or sandpaper to their lineup. Uh, we'll see what they do. I think Cal uh, Dubas, the GM of the Leafs, has a few more buttons to press over the next uh, couple of weeks. Rick, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much. You got it. Take care. Cheers. That's Rick Zamprin talking sports from our sister station, 900 CHML in Hamilton. All right. I want to invite to the show Dr. Amir uh, Adaran. He's a law professor and an immunologist at the University of Ottawa. He's been on the show before. And it's good to have you on, doctor, because I read this great article you just wrote for McLean's.ca. Um, it's about how the liberals are bungling the vaccine endgame, but I think it's about a lot more than that. You say that basically we're on the verge of a miracle here, and what used to take years, usually over a decade, is unfolding in 12 months. It's hopeful news. There are various teams running clinic, clinic, clinical trials over several continents. The calendar year has been cut, but no corners have been cut when it comes to developing a vaccine. Uh, for COVID-19, and there are seven trial vaccines in phase three, the last phase where researchers are basically hoping to show that these vaccines are viable and there won't be any major life-threatening side effects if we take them. The consensus is that one vaccine, and you hope even more, will pass the finish line before the snow melts, you say, and you go on to talk about these vaccines. So before we get into how the, the Canadian government has bungled our opportunity to get the vaccine when everyone else does by the time snow melts, um, let's talk about these vaccines and where they're at. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm fantastic. So you summed it up nicely. We're doing wonderfully. Scientifically, it couldn't be better. If anyone had told me At the beginning of the year, COVID was discovered on December 30th last year, that we would have vaccines researched, developed, tested, and likely ready for human use in about 12 months. I would have said that was crazy. And yet, that's what's going to happen. There are seven, seven vaccines in the final stage of testing right now. And they did brilliantly in the earlier stages. That's pretty good news. It's great news. And not all vaccines are created equally, right? So maybe break down the vaccines that are uh, right now being uh, tested. Uh, There are various types of vaccines just for the average person like myself. Can you make it easy to consume like you did in your McLean's uh, article? Sure. What a vaccine does, any vaccine, is basically teach your immune system 
what the enemy looks like so that when the enemy comes along, your immune system is ready to kill it. A vaccine is an educational process for the immune system. That's what you can think of it like. How the vaccine is made to do that, well, there's all sorts of different flavors. You can take the whole virus and kill it and inject it. It's dead, so it won't do you any harm, but the immune system will learn to recognize it and fight the live virus if you're ever exposed to it accidentally. Or you can do that with just pieces of the virus. Maybe that's enough for the immune system to react to. Or you can do it by injecting the genetic code of part of the virus so that your own cells make it. Your own cells basically turn into a little vaccine factory. That comes closer to the biological reality, and it also seems to work. And the most innovative way is actually to insert pieces of the COVID virus, which is, of course, dangerous, into a totally harmless virus, the kind that might give you the sniffles. So that virus won't make you ill, but it carries just enough of COVID that the immune system learns to react to it. All these technologies work. They're all being tested right now. And And this is unprecedented. I mean, never in human history have we managed to get this much progress in so little time. And you go on to say that, you know, uh, a lot of Western nations have already begun to not only buy these uh, vaccines, they're already in, in phase three trial, but they did so ages ago and they bought a couple of them, betting on the fact that maybe some won't work. Uh, you bring up the UK. Can you tell us about their strategy when it came to, you know, making sure that they procured the vaccines as soon as they're ready? Sure. You know, the first thing the UK did is at Oxford University, they invented a vaccine candidate. And I think that is going to be the very first one through the final stages of clinical trials with a success, probably by the end of the year. And disclosure, my PhD is from Oxford, so I'm I'm not saying this because it's my alma mater. I'm saying it because they did a superb job. But the British weren't content to stop there, inventing and testing their own vaccine. No, they wanted backups. So they have now purchased six different vaccines from different makers. They've put money on the table for those vaccines in order that the day the vaccines succeed in clinical trials and the day that there is some to ship from the factory, they are first in line to get it. They've pre-purchased the vaccines now. That is something that the United States has also done, that Australia and Japan have done, that the 27 countries of the European Union have done. They've all pre-purchased some vaccines. Okay, that's great news. What did we buy? Nothing. Nothing. So this is the problem we now have in Canada, that although the science is doing brilliantly on this, our government has yet to purchase a single dose of any vaccine. So, Amir, let's see, because the... That's a really uh, hard statement to swallow, especially since since the very beginning of this COVID pandemic, we have been saying life is not really going to go back to normal until we get a vaccine. 
why is it that Canada hasn't done, um, you know, followed along with the rest of Western Europe and the rest of North America, the UK, and decided to procure their vaccine while they're being made to make sure that they've advanced purchased from not only one, but at least two vaccine, uh, you know, hopefuls? Well, Kelly, that's of course what should have happened, but it didn't. And now we are in a position of scrambling to get access to any vaccine supply because with all those other countries having made pre-purchases, of course, they're in the line ahead of us. And so when the first batches of vaccine are manufactured, they have divs. They've already put the money down for it. We haven't. This is going to place us at a tremendous disadvantage in that other countries will receive the first batches before we do, and there may or may not be any left for us of those first batches. We could be waiting months longer than other countries. Unless this dithering, and that's really what it is, by the federal government ends, and they purchase, if any is left still to be purchased, what they can, or even better, if they reach an agreement with the vaccine makers to manufacture their product in Canada under license. And I think at this late date, that's probably the best solution for us being in this situation that we shouldn't be in at all. Do we have the facilities to manufacture enough vaccines? So that's the good news. The National Research Council, the federal government, is actually brilliant at making vaccines. And I mentioned that vaccine that was invented at Oxford, the one that, that uses a harmless virus to carry little pieces of COVID for the immune system. Not to hurt you, of course, but to educate the immune system about what COVID looks like. That vaccine belongs to a class of vaccines, get ready for the word, called adenovirus-vectored vaccines. And guess which country first made one? Canada. And it was made at our federal National Research Council. We beat every pharmaceutical company in the world to make a vaccine using that technology. Not for COVID, but for rabies. Now, it's a small step for them to move from rabies to COVID. They could do it. The scientists at the NRC are world class. They just need the government to organize things so that they have the legal right to make the Oxford vaccine here. And, and what would that entail, Amir? Would that entail them going to the actual person, the, the rights holders of the vaccine, the company that's, that's manufacturing it and saying, uh, we'll give you this amount of money if we can have the recipe? Yeah, basically. I mean, you have to get permission from whoever holds the rights. And I think we should do this not only because we can and because we have the good fortune of excellent scientists at the National Research Council able to do it for us. But I think we should be getting that license and manufacturing more than Canada needs so that we can gift some of it to the poorest countries that otherwise aren't going to get any. That would be a Canadian thing to do, to help ourselves and then help others. But Let me ask you this, Amir. Um, you mentioned the um, UK and how they actually, in your article, you say they've placed orders for six possible vaccines, nabbing 340 million doses of, uh, for a population of 66 million. Okay, worst case scenario, we don't get our manufacturing 
up to the level that we should. We don't secure those rights, so we can't make it here in Canada. We haven't uh, secured the vaccine. Is it possible that we may be actually in a position where we find ourselves buying vaccine for the from the UK at a higher price if they actually have bought more viable vaccine than they need? And how long are uh, vaccines viable for? You know, there's a lot of ifs around the answer to that question. I mean, would the UK continue to maintain those orders or would they cancel those orders as soon as they got what they needed? If they maintain the orders... Would they want to give their surplus to us? Well, I didn't say give. I'm talking about selling it. Or even sell it. Who knows? I mean, if they become a seller, are we going to be the person, the country they want to sell to? Or will they look at it as, we've got this wonderful asset, let's sell it to other countries and get diplomatic favors out of them? I don't know. But what I do know is I don't want Canada's fate to be resting on something like this. Mm-hmm. We should order our own vaccines and we should make our own just like Western Europe, the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Japan, India, Brazil. I could go on and on. All of those countries are ahead of us right now. Even Before India I let you go. Because we're always at a time crunch on this show. How long are vaccines viable for? It depends on the vaccine. It depends entirely. And, you know, I mentioned there were all those different technologies to make vaccines. That is something that will vary product by product. But most of them, you can figure that you can keep them in the fridge for a few months. Okay, that's not a long time. So if somebody did, you know, you you don't want to hang on to stockpiles. You want to make sure they're moving and and they get out to actual uh, people as soon as possible. So that that could be hopeful if we need to procure some vaccine uh, down the line. But um, what you are outlining here is uh, something I think all Canadians should be aware of. Uh, Your article is in McLean's, uh, at McLean's.ca, how the Liberals are bungling the vaccine endgame. Thank you so much, Amir. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. So nice to talk to you, Kelly. Take care. Cheers. Let's hope uh, the the Prime Minister and the country get their act together and on this vaccine and get things going. That is a serious situation that we could find ourselves in. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cotrera podcast. Join me weekdays, nine till noon, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.